The goal of missions is worship, but worship can look very different from the Roman Catholic saturated cities of Spain or Italy to the unreached sands of the Islamic Sahara. What role does our style of worship play in missions, and does traditional liturgy play a role as well? ABWE missionary to Spain Andy Mesmer answers this week. But first, an important word. If you're a regular listener to this show, we wanted to say thank you. Without the Lord's help and without you, we wouldn't still be doing this. But we also want you to know that this show wouldn't exist if it weren't for ABWE International and ABWE missionaries like Justin who's a missionary in a Muslim country in Asia. So let me tell you about him. One day, he was wandering a crowded street doing street evangelism. He'd been doing it every morning for nine months with no results. He was discouraged. He sat down at an outdoor coffee shop. Local men crowded the table, fraternizing before the start of the workday. Justin tried to start a spiritual conversation with the Muslim man seated next to him, and the man, disinterested, walked off. But before Justin could even process the rejection, he heard a voice speaking to him in broken English. The voice said, You said sins forgiven. How? It was another Muslim man who had been sitting next to him who was listening silently the whole time. Justin, knowing the dangers of doing evangelism openly in this country, started to whisper to him about Jesus. They crept closer and closer until they were inches apart. They were looking around for danger the whole time. Justin whispered the gospel into this man's ear, and the man grabbed him by the shoulders, pushed him back, and said, many of us want to know this message, but we're not allowed to ask. That's what life is like in a country where evangelism is illegal, and more than 130 ABWE workers like Justin are serving in places like this. Every gift to ABWE's Global Gospel Fund goes to critical staffing, support, training, and services to advance the gospels of the lost and unreached through faithful workers like Justin. So learn more and become a partner with ABWE at abwe.org partner. That's abwe.org partner. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Communications with ABWE, joined again, as always, by Scott Dunford, West Coast Advancement Coordinator with ABWE and Pastor of Redeemer Church in Fremont, California. And Scott, the guest that we're talking to today, boy, this has been a long time in the making, and we've been talking about having Andy on for a little while and, uh, and and even just landing the plane of what we would talk about. There's almost limitless options for what we could discuss with Andy, right? And we'll introduce him for a minute. But uh, if you don't mind, actually, I want to go back to that that commercial that we just heard for, for ABWE, for the Global Gospel Fund, that story of Justin. If you do like I do and you use that kind of 30 second, 30 second skip forward button on your phone to, to, to move past that and move right to the beginning of the episode. If you haven't heard that story before, go back because it's critical and it ties in to what we want to discuss today. But before I share why, if this show has been of impact to you, remember to share it with a friend. Remember to leave us a positive rating and a five-star review in your podcast app of choice that helps us get this content in front of others who need it. And so we really appreciate your help in that regard. But anyway, getting back to that Justin story, Scott, and you and I both know Justin. Um, you and I both know that his real name isn't Justin, but we'll keep calling him that um, for the sake of security, right? So Justin uh, comes to my office um, the other day and we're talking and um, we we resonate on a lot of these same things, right? About the centrality of 
of being bold with the gospel, of church planting, of not being pragmatic in our approach to how we're doing things, even in these hard places, even in unreached contexts. And um, we started talking about what do you do in an Islamic context in, in, uh, in terms of Lord's Day worship and worship on Sunday. And is it uh, allowed in the New Testament? Can we gather on a Friday, right? Or, or is Sunday the new Christian Sabbath? And him and I didn't see quite eye to eye on that. Um, we, we landed in a pretty similar place, but we, we both put different levels of significance on the, the first day of the week. I put a lot more significance on it. He was more open to contextualizing things differently because, hey, just as a matter of safety, if people are seeing you gather on a Sunday, that might be a risk to you. Whereas if you're you're doing your corporate worship as a church on a Friday, yeah, you, you might blend in with the crowd. And, and, you know, does the New Testament let us treat that as the Lord's Day? And, and we had a conversation about that. I don't want to dive exclusively into that, but it does set up this idea of, man, we, we have historic traditions in the church as Protestants, as evangelicals. We don't like to think about the past. We like to think that we've got it all figured out. But there's traditions, Sunday worship, Lord's Day worship, and the significance of that being being one of them, um, especially um, from the Puritans onward, right? There's a tradition there. And the question is, how, how do those traditions in worship land on the mission field? Especially for people like us who are evangelicals, um, Baptistic, we, we tend not to want to think too much uh, about the past. Scott, I know that's something that you've wrestled through um, at your church, your church is unique in that way, as is mine in some ways. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm sure what I'll what I my position wouldn't be super popular, <laughs> but but we we really feel like being in a very secular place, um, in a, in a place where I mean, uh, in two Sundays, Lord willing, I'm baptizing the son of a Buddhist priest, you know, and and that is not that shocking, you know. We've got Hindus and Muslims, former former Muslims, and and even current Hindus attending services occasionally. Um, and, and the idea of like super modern is very American. And so, you know, part of our, our strategy and is saying, okay, we want to be very intentional with our liturgy with that, you know, like the way we order our services and the rhythms and patterns of our worship in order to, to teach what is truly Christian and create like a, an environment that when people walk in, they're like, okay, this is Christian. And I realized like, that's like not super maybe popular, but, um, but we're excited to see how it's working. So you're talking about like smoke machines and like fog machines and lasers. Yeah, you know, it, that's kind of what you do. <laughs> well, you know, I know you and I are even maybe I'm, I'm not quite the, uh, uh, what, what's the right term there, Alex? I'm blanking on the, on the reform tradition on, on worship. Um, I'm not exactly a, um, uh, regulative principle. You're not a super. I'm not 100 percent regulative principle guy like you might be, but uh, I, I but, don't know if I want I, to be called 100 percent strict. I think people take that too far sometimes. But well, anyway, we we're boring everybody on this, but but still, I, I <laughs> think there's guests. some good points to be made. Yes, <laughs> we're not boring, we're not boring our guests. So let's introduce him. Yes. Andy Mesmer. He serves with ABWE in Spain. Does some important things there. Andrew, uh, Andy will share a, a bit about himself. In a second, he also writes about topics like this for sites like the Center for Baptist Renewal, and he's in a room surrounded in books. Uh, he's uh, uh, probably a lot smarter than we are. So let's let him introduce himself. How's that sound? We hope he's smarter than us because otherwise this will be a bad episode. So Andy, right. it's good to have you with us. You're in a place of of incredible historical uh, you know, Christian ishness, <laughs> but also a place of, of complete, complete given, given over to secular, secular humanism, uh, in, in Spain there. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how did, how did you end up in Spain of all places and what are you doing there? Yeah. Um, 
Well, um, yeah, those are great questions. Um, I uh, am from Indiana. I'm from a Baptist church, uh, Garb Church in Indiana. I went to college and Faith Baptist Bible College in Iowa. I did my master's in Phoenix uh, at Phoenix Seminary and my PhD at the Evangelical Theological Faculty in Belgium. And, uh, well, that's my standard, uh, you know, academic introduction. Sure. Um, so, um, as far as how we got here to Spain, I mean, I'm an academic, so I always, you know, I have things nice, clearly organized. Like we talk about the objective call of God, the subjective call of God, and the confirmation of local church. So, you know, objectively, how on earth did we come to Spain? Well, my wife always wanted to be a missionary and she wanted to go to Peru and she was there for a year. She came back and told me all of her horror stories. And I said, we are not going to Peru. <laughs> I like to use toilets and I don't like to eat guinea pigs, basically. Um, so, but, you know, the more that we thought about um, the, the, the gifts that God has given us, the type of people that we were, um, you know, we both spoke Spanish. Actually, I moved to Phoenix to learn Spanish, uh, help start a church down there. Um, you know, our, our way of evangelism, we're not, we don't hand out tracts. We don't have big, um, you know, um, meetings. We, we, we share Christ in our living rooms at the park and just as we go. And just the more we thought about it, the more we realized, uh, you know, Spain kind of on paper objectively, uh, it just makes a lot of sense. And then subjective call of God. I don't really know how to explain it. Um, we were open to going to any, any country in the world. And then someday, uh, or one day I just found a, a, a little pamphlet on Spain and I don't know how to explain it, but ever since I read that pamphlet, I've never wanted to be anywhere but Spain. And I, I can't explain it, but that's what the Lord used in my mm. life. And then we started talking to our local church and, uh, we went through a several year process of just talking it through and, uh, taking intentional steps to prepare us and to prepare the church, uh, to come to Spain. And they confirmed that the Lord was calling us and they sent us over here in 2012. I love how you broke that down. That's that's thorough. Um, I think other people thinking about a call to missions should break it down in those categories. I agree with those categories, but but we digress. I I just read. I just got finished reading through the Book of Romans on on the, the kind of the Bible reading plan that I'm on, and um, Paul talks about reaching Spain. Why do I bring that up? Well, you know, we can debate whether or not he ever made it to Spain, right? And maybe the jury's hung on that one. But people have been trying to reach Spain and have been reaching Spain since the first century. So uh, why are we still sending missionaries there today? Haven't they had the gospel for a little while? Yeah, that's a great question. And just actually, I don't think the jury's hung on that one. I think it's pretty clear. We have evidence from the first century that he did make it to make it to Spain. Uh, first Clement chapter five, Meritorian canon, unanimous testament of the early church. They all say he made it over here. They don't talk about whether it was successful or not. We still don't know how he spoke Latin. Um, but, uh, he, he, I think, it, I think it's pretty clear he made it over here, but that's, I, well, that's not just my opinion. You know but, more uh, about it than I do. See, again, this is why we have <laughs> on it. guests who are smarter I than us. I love it. And, uh, well, and I'm in Spain, so I have Spanish pride. So, you know, I, I wanted to say that he made it over here. So yeah, this is really interesting. I mean, it's, it's actually the, the question you asked is, is actually a really fascinating question. And if I could maybe just rephrase the same question so that I could answer it just a little bit differently when did Spain quote unquote stop being Orthodox or when did the church stop being Orthodox? And you will, you will get a whole host of of answers to that. So like if you go back to, you know, 19th century classical liberalism, what they'll say is that the church stopped being, they stopped faithfully preaching the gospel sometime first, second century. They, 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 they mixed Jesus's pure gospel of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man with Hellenistic philosophy. And this really corrupted the gospel and it was corrupted until 19th century German 
liberals uncovered it. You know, if you talk to like a free church. And so our listeners know that's not the view you're endorsing. You're sharing a perspective. Yeah. It might be not the view, but I'm not, I can't, I can't confirm or deny that. Right. (laughs) Uh, If you, if you talk to someone else, like an Anabaptist or someone from the free church tradition, uh, when Constantine came to power, uh, early fourth century, that was a huge turning point. People started saying there, that's when the church started going, going, going south. If you go to the Oriental Orthodox Church, so not the Eastern Orthodox, but even further east than them, they're what's called non-Chalcedonian Catholics. So after, before, before Chalcedon in 4, 451, they say that was really the turning point. That's when the church stopped going faithful and we don't accept that council. You go to our tradition, the, 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 the Protestant Reformation, not the Anabaptist, but the Magisterial Reformation, and they almost unanimously say first five centuries were really good. And after that, things started getting bad until the gospel was rediscovered in the 16th century. You go to the Eastern Orthodox Church and they'll say uh, it was after the Seventh Ecumenical Council sometime in the 8th century. Uh, if you go to actually Luther at the beginning of his debates, he said that the church was fine until the 11th century, which is really interesting. And then you go to the Roman Catholic Church and say, no, the church has always been right. Spain's always had the gospel and we've never been wrong and things just fine. So, you know, American missionaries go back home. So, <laughs> um, so What's that uh, gif of the dog that's just in a room that's in flames. Everything is fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I actually had someone tell me to go home. Um, a, a Roman, it was a, it was one of the most brilliant guys I've ever met. He had six earned PhDs, and he, he over here in Spain. Wow. He said, "You guys shouldn't be over here." And like, <laughs> uh, but anyways, um, so going back to Spain, though, when what what happened to Spain? Well, um, we know that Spain was really Orthodox. We know Cyprian of Carthage was writing letters here. Um, at the first ecumenical council, um, Hosius was actually the president. Hosius was the bishop, or you can say, you can think of it like the senior pastor of, of Cordoba here in southern Spain. He was the president. He was the one who, you know, according to tradition or whatever, whispered into the ear of, uh, of Constantine the word homoousios. You know, so uh, fourth century, Spain was doing pretty good. Um, and then you have actually, um, the, the Arians, they come in from the north, they invade the Roman, uh, empire. It, it collapses. But uh, they were all Aryan. Uh, and so, you know, we would say, hey, the gospel wasn't being preached here anymore if you're denying the deity of Christ. Uh, but then a little bit after that, a new king comes to comes to power. He becomes Orthodox and then, you know, preaching the deity of Christ again. We've got several uh, fragments of, of, of works from really good guys that are preaching the gospel, 5th century, 6th century, 7th century, 8th century. And we've got this really good liturgy that we're using. It's typically called the Mozarabic liturgy, but that's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, and then something important happens. I don't know if this is the most important thing that happens, but this is an important thing that happens. Um, now I'm blanking on the date. I want to say the 11th century, maybe it was the 12th century, but we'll say the 11th century. Um, the Roman liturgy supplanted the Mozarabic liturgy and so, I mean, I don't want to make the gospel depend on the liturgy, but the liturgy is the way that we are incarnating the gospel, our beliefs into certain rhythms and certain confessions that we have. And that's where I think at the very least we can start to say, you know, something's going wrong here in the church. We're not really focusing on God anymore. We're not focusing on this free, scandalous forgiveness of sins that God offers us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Um, and so... We would, you know, I think there's probably a case to be made that sometime there in the Middle Ages, something went wrong in the church. And um, 
So we're here as missionaries to try to try to correct that. We had our own reformation. It's fortunate we can't talk about this, but in the 16th century, we had a beautiful, wonderful, um, but also tragic reformation. Um, and we are uh, still today uh, discovering our reformation, which is absolutely fascinating. Uh, the reason we moved down here to Southern Spain is because I live in the town where the reformation happened. It's a town called Santi Ponce. And if I look at my window, I can see the monastery where all the monks were studying and where they had to flee on the eve of the Inquisition, just bringing the hammer down and starting all of those uh, horrible um, inquisitional, uh, you know, burnings and martyrdoms. Um, so we're, we're, we are rediscovering our Spanish uh, Reformation here in Spain and trying to reintroduce this to the um, to, to, to the Spanish people. So. I think that's fascinating. I wish we could spend a lot more time talking about the 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 Spanish Reformation, um, and maybe we'll have to schedule another time to talk a little bit more about that because I think understanding our history is so critical. But um, you know, you're, you you've talked a little bit about being in a Roman Catholic country now, um, having um, all these new liturgies that came through the Roman Catholics that really kind of polluted or made the gospel less clear. How and we and Alex and I we've talked about this a lot on this show and um, it's something we've been thinking about a lot. It, it, you know, we think as missionaries that like defining the gospel clearly is is like so simple and obviously the first task we have to do. But it, it kind of is getting lost. And in fact, it, it seems like when people are explaining the gospel, like it isn't as clear as we would we or obvious as we would hope it would be. How how important is it in a in a place like Spain? Um, with a heavily Roman Catholic history and a uh, very complicated Christian history to have a clearly defined gospel? Yeah, well, that's that's a great question. Actually, just let me take one step back and make it even more complicated than what you said. Please do. Um, <laughs> we are facing, I think, may, maybe particularly in Spain or maybe particular in Western Europe, but certainly around the world, we are facing tremendous pre pressure from three separate uh, directions. We're facing tremendous pressure from secularism, um, which is, it's, I mean, it's, it's in our churches and, and, you know, we're seeing that, that affect the churches. We're also facing tremendous pressure from Islam and they have, unlike most of the West, they have not lost their vision for why they exist. And so they are very motivated and very, um, um, well, that <laughs> they're very motivated. Uh, you can just judge that by the amount of kids they're having. They believe in the future and most of the West doesn't. Um, and the, the, the third pressure is the ecumenical movement. Now I'm not against all the ecumenical movement. In fact, I think we as Protestants desperately need to recover biblical ecumenism, but we have these three forces pressing in on us from three different directions. And if we as Protestants don't know what the gospel is, we are going to find release in one of these three directions and we're going to completely lose our identity and our movement. Mm. So how critical is it? It's extremely uh, important and not just to contrast it against the Roman Catholics, but even against secularism and Islam and, and any other pressure that may be out there. But so, so that's just to make it a little more <laughs> complicated. But then if we even just look at it from a different um a different direction. Well, actually, can I, can I, can I share a, a historical story? Can I, can I do that? By all means, <laughs> what do you brother? think, Alex? What do you think? Okay. Uh, we'll allow, we'll allow, allow it. it. 
Okay. There's, there's, a, there's a really fascinating history, uh, a really fascinating theory when you uh, look at uh, what happened in Northern Africa, especially. Uh, when you look at Northern Africa in the 7th, 8th century, um, Islam uh, conquered all of North Africa. But uh, Christianity has remained in the East, in North Africa, but in the West, it, 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 was, it's, it doesn't exist anymore. And there's a big question as far as, you know, what was the difference between Eastern North Africa and Western North Africa? And uh, the uh, one of the best theories that I've heard is that because the in Western North Africa they were Aryan, in other words, they didn't uh, believe Jesus was God, mm. and, and that would affect their their, their liturgy. Um, when uh, Muslims came in and they said, "Look, you know, we don't believe Jesus is God. You don't believe Jesus is God. We believe in one God. You believe in one God." Uh, the theory is that it was much easier for them to assimilate into mm. Islam than it would be on the eastern part of North Africa, where they explicitly put into their liturgy reference after reference after reference to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And so that's just a historical example of how important liturgy is and how important it is to be explicit with what we, with, mm. with what we believe. That's just, that's just a historical example. But I think it's some fascinating and really worthy to 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 consider. So, okay. So coming back to your question, let me just come at it from from one direction. As far as what is the gospel now, um, this kind of bothered me because I, I was not just myself, but other people, other people that I was reading, uh, listening to other stories. This kind of gospel presentation of Jesus died for your sins, which absolutely is the center of the gospel. We don't ever want to deny that or be afraid of that or shy away from that or downplay it. That is the center of the gospel, but it is the center of the gospel. <laughs> you know, there's a part before that and there's a part after mm. that. Um, and so I, this just got me thinking, you know, what, what is the gospel? And this, this launched me into a, a long um, study on studying the, how the, uh, the apostles preached the gospel in the New Testament, the sermons and acts, different references that we have to what you could call like the kerygma, the apostolic preaching. And there's probably in the New Testament something like 60 or 70 references, allusions to the gospel in the New Testament. And when we take them all, um, identify the themes that recur over and over again, and then we systematize it, we put it all together. What comes out just based on the New Testament is that the, 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 the same themes recur over and over again. And the three big ideas that come through. No, number are, one, God loves you. And it's a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> yes. You've, you've read, you've read the study. <laughs> I, I have. Yeah. Um, I studied for this one. Guys, the, I did the, prep. <laughs> the three main themes that come up is God, the father has, he is the creator of all things. And he is the one who was preparing us for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, number two, the Messiah has come. God, the son, he has come. He was uh, born of the virgin. Uh, he was born of, uh, uh, by the spirit. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sins. He rose again. He's ascended. He is enthroned. He is Lord. He's coming again. And then the third part is a call to receive the Holy Spirit, to form part of the local church, to be, to be, to be baptized to lead a changed life and that uh, the uh, God is coming again. 
And when you talk about the gospel like this, you realize that the gospel is, we could say it's tripartite. There's three, there's three different parts to it. It's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is the creator, the Son is the redeemer, and the Spirit is the life giver. Now, you know, we believe in perichoresis and that the, all the fathers and the son and all the sons and the spirit and all the spirits and the father and all that. So you can't like divide it up neatly, but, you know, generally speaking, the father's role in, in redemption is, you know, creation and, and the sons is, is redemption and, and the spirit is life giving. This is just Ephesians one, by the way, this is just what Paul lays out for us in Ephesians chapter one. But when, when, when you see things like that, when you talk about the gospel, not just the central part that Jesus died for us, but when you look at it, how it was all being preached, you realize this is the Apostles' Creed. Hmm. Um, and the Apostles' Creed, we know, we have it. We're certain that mm-hmm. something like the Apostles' Creed that we have today was already existent at the very latest by the mid-2nd century. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the first time we have it written down. We can read it. We, we know it was there. <laughs> right. And so I think it's a very, very small step to say the Apostles' Creed is just a summary of the New Testament preaching of the New Testament kerygma. And so I came, I guess you could say I have, I have peace or I have a <laughs> assurance that um, I can embrace things like a creed, like the Apostles' Creed, because what I'm doing is I'm embracing a systematic presentation of the apostolic preaching. Yeah. And what the nice thing, what this allows me to do is from the Apostles' Creed, the exact same structures laid out for us in what has been the most important creed in all of church history, which was called the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed of the year 381. It is the exact same structure, the exact same things, except for the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed is just a little more developed. It makes the Son's divinity a little more explicit, the Spirit's divinity a little more explicit, but it's the same thing. And what that allows me to do and hopefully others. I mean, I, I published it. I guess you could call it a semi-academic publication, but other pe- other people bought into this. You know, this isn't just my crazy idea. <laughs> and I sent it to people before it was published. So, uh, but I, so I hope other people can benefit from it. But what it allows us to do is it allows us as Protestants who believe in sola scriptura. You know, I believe sola scriptura, that scripture is our final authority. But what this allows me to do is as a sola scriptura Christian, to enter into the most important creeds and confessions that the church has ever produced, like the Apostles' Creed, like the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, etc. So then we ask ourselves, what is the gospel? Okay. So if if you know if you allow me some grace in my language here, the gospel is the Apostles' Creed and its correct interpretation. So I'm not saying like the, the creed has independent authority. I'm just saying that the creed, based mm-hmm. on sure. to the extent that it accurately reflects the New Testament teaching. It's right. the Apostles' Creed and its correct interpretation. So to get back to your question, what are we doing? What are we doing in Roman Catholic Spain? What are we doing here? We are not coming over here preaching um, to Roman Catholics. Hey guys, did you know that there's just one God the Father? That he created everything? Roman Catholics already know that. You know, we're not coming over here preaching, hey, did you know that he sent his son, that he died for our sins? Roman Catholics already know that. Now, there's a few things that enter in there. Okay, there there are a few things, you know, well, you know, Mary and, and some other things, where the real debate comes in, and this is the classic Protestant position where the real debate comes in is over the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit creates the church. 
The Holy Spirit gives us remission of sins. What does it mean to have forgiveness of sins? That was what the Reformation was about. Right. And the and if I could hop in there too, sure. Andy, that might be a new thought for some of our listeners. They're thinking, well, wait a second, salvation, that's all Jesus. Holy Spirit, that's all sanctification, that's all power, <laughs> that's all, you know, the it, life life change, but but coming from our tradition, we we recognize biblically again Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ. And ha- is is the Holy Spirit applying it or is the Roman Church dispensing it through the priesthood? That is exactly right. So uh, both sides agree that the Father has achieved redemption through the Son. Both sides agree that, that salvation, if you like, is in Christ alone. What the debate was is, how is that applied to us? How do we get the benefit of this? And this is where Protestants started saying, it's by God's grace alone and not by grace and works. Um, it's, it's by faith alone and not by faith and, and works. And it's in Christ alone. We don't put our faith in the church, which is what the church was asking at the time. They're asking for implicit faith in the, in the church. And that, that, that's the context of, of the solas is how, what is the Holy Spirit doing in the church? And that's also the sola of to the glory of God alone. In our church services, we don't want to be distracted by other saints and they are saints and they are worshiping God in heaven, but we don't want to address our worship or anything <laughs> that blurry line between veneration and worship. Right. We don't want true. that. Yeah, we don't we don't want that. What we do want is to focus on God alone. And that's the context of the Reformation. So when 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 we come over here and we are um tr- we we need to have crystal clear what is the gospel what are we saying as Protestants and what are they saying as Catholics? Now I'm always, I, I'm an academic. And so I, it's very easy for me to like flip roles and see things from the other perspective, which is very, um, uh, bothersome to my wife <laughs> because I'm always holding it. I'm always in tension. Uh, and you know, other people, they're like, just make a decision, Andy. And I'm always like, Oh, what's the other decision say? But you know, if, if, if you can allow me to do that, I, I do think that we as Protestants, we have failed as, as well. We, we, there are things actually we can learn from Roman Catholics or from the Orthodox or from, from other traditions. And I think everyone can anticipate what I'm going to say. It is just so tragic to see all, what has happened to to the Protestant Church and how we have fractured into so many different groups, and that's what we need to work on as Protestants. That's where we really need to to uh, to to get our um, our head in the game and say we yeah. are one church. There is Christ only has one bride. We are one body, and uh, this is what's primary. This is what's secondary, and we we really need to work through that Amen. stuff. So I, we, we know we probably need to schedule another one and kind of go deeper on some of these topics. This is very fascinating and appreciate your scholarship in these areas. Um, you, you've written a lot about liturgy. In fact, you know, recently you, we had read an article that you had done um, talking about uh, how, you know, liturgy kind of lives out and in, in over, over you know, the, the traditional Protestant, some of the traditional Protestant liturgies kind of lay out the apostles creed over the course of the year through the readings and, and uh, through the use of the, the calendar. Um, 
So, and you've written a lot about how the use of the right use of liturgy, how that can can actually uh, be used to train churches and be instrumental in discipleship uh, and teaching people about the gospel. So, why do you think it is that Baptists have traditionally avoided um, even using a term like liturgy? And why do you think that's a mistake? And and maybe if you can, you know, specifically apply that to the uniqueness of the mission field where you're at, but also help us to see why. Um, so we should think about some of these things even here in the States. Yeah. Well, it's always important to be historically aware. And, uh, you know, I'll just take issue with the use of traditionally Baptists. Um, actually, traditionally, Baptists had liturgy. 17th century, 18th century, uh, they, they, they adopted the, re, the traditional Reformed liturgy. That's what they, that, that's what they did. Um, what happened was... Uh, the 19th century was incredibly formative for modern evangelicalism and therefore modern, the modern Baptist movement. You've got, you've got for example, uh, the Restorationist movement in America, mm-hmm. where we say we're going to go back to the New Testament, cut and paste. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's, that's yeah. what they tried to do. Um, you've got, uh, this is where the, these slogans like no creed but the Bible or no creed but Christ, no, no. Andy's no. singing my song right now. He is singing <laughs> my song. Um, uh, you've got um, okay, so you've got like in England, you've got this strong um, tractarian movement, Oxford movement, which is a which is an attempt to bring the Anglican Church into further alignment with the Roman Catholic Church, and then you have a reaction to that that goes the other way. So we just have these huge forces that are really cutting us away from historic Christianity and historic Baptist uh, practice. And so it hasn't always been the case that Baptists have been allergic to liturgy, but something happened in the 19th century. I'm not sure what to blame exactly, but. <laughs> well, in the 20th well, century too, I think the fundamentalist modernist uh, divide pushed us into uh, ghettos, uh, intellectually um, speaking. Hold us action, yeah, if you will. Yeah, yeah, that could that could be that that would be interesting to think about. I I, I could see that being the case. Um, so, but I, I think what happened is that we started valuing spontaneity um, because it was considered more genuine. You know, like when a kid opens up a Christmas gift and we just want to see that that reaction. It's like, well, we know that's genuine. You know, that's not made up, and so it's 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 more spiritual if it's more general uh, if it's more spontaneous and genuine. Um, I think probably some people also want to avoid vain repetitions. You know, um, if you could give a really uncharitable reading to liturgy, I guess you could kind of say it's like, um, writing out, uh, what you're going to say, like to your wife on your anniversary and just reading it to her, like, you know, like, uh, um, happy fifth wedding anniversary. Uh, this last year has been really good. You know, <laughs> it just seems really cold and really, 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 um, just stiff. Um, so I think those are probably some of the influences, but you know, getting back to what you said, Scott, about what liturgy is, you know, there's a lot of components to liturgy. You can talk about liturgy from the individual Sunday service. or You can talk about the, the, the liturgical year. If we could just go to the liturgical year, that's been my argument that if we take the gospel and we lay it down on its side, um, you're just basically walking through the gospel from the liturgical year in the West is from December until June. 
And so imagine, you know, people listening, they don't have any type of liturgical calendar. Um, imagine a pastor standing up uh, last Sunday in November and saying, for the next seven months, I'm going to do a series on the gospel. Uh, we're going to talk about the Father. We're going to talk about the Son. We're going to talk about the Spirit. That is basically what the liturgical calendar is. I mean, I don't know how many uh, when, liturgical... When done well, yes. When, when done biblically and faithfully and without superstition, yeah. Yes, I, yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to give as charitable of a reading towards a liturgical calendar as possible, but <laughs> there's bad, there, there are bad, uh, bad, bad examples as well. But um, if, if someone can accept that, that's basically what, what the liturgical calendar is, is, is trying to do. It's trying to remind us of the key events and what God has done to redeem us, um, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so then, and this isn't new. This is definitely not Roman Catholic. The liturgical year is definitely not Roman Catholic. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it goes back to the second century. That's where we start to find the very first hints of yearly celebrations of key events in the life of Christ. And by the fourth century, it was pretty much the, the whole liturgical calendar was in place. And it wasn't in place just in Spain or just in Italy or just in Jerusalem. It was in place throughout the whole Roman Empire and beyond. I mean, it was, everyone was doing it, <laughs> to kind of say it like that. Um, so so then, you know, you can also put in other components, like um, you have this liturgical calendar but you can also have what's called a lectionary. And a lectionary would just be reading from Scripture certain texts that complement what, what part of the liturgical year you're in. So if you're in the liturgical year that's talking about, um, you know, the death of Christ, the lectionary is just going to be readings from Scripture that talk about the death of Christ. I mean, you're just trying to, to highlight that. Um, and so the liturgical year and lectionary and, and other you know, complementary components to liturgy in the best of cases, what we're trying to do is remind ourselves of the gospel in a systematic, comprehensive way year after year after year. That's what we're trying to do. So let's, let's bring it in for some application and and for some landing, uh, Andy. Um, We started this conversation kind of teasing it as is liturgy like this Everybody has a liturgy. I, I don't. I don't care how deconstructed your worship is. I don't care if you go to you know Willow Creek or something like that. Everybody has a liturgy. It's just whether or not you call it that. You're consciously aware of that. Uh, we all have a tradition. Uh, the question is what tradition you belong to. But it is liturgy in the sense that you've described for missionaries, uh, or do we need to deconstruct and, and really kind of leave a lot of that behind when we go cross culturally? Um, I, I think I know what you would say, but how would you weigh in on that? And, and then what practically should a missionary in a place, you know, like Spain, a secularized place, uh, maybe you're being squeezed from major religions all around, or maybe you're in a very unchurched, unreached, altogether sort of context. How would they apply some of that? <laughs> okay, this may be the hardest question of all, believe it or not. Um, let, okay, so let me, uh, let me answer the, the, the first part of the question. I think, and, I, and I'll just answer it from someone in Western Europe, in a traditionally Roman Catholic country. Um, I think liturgy is very important um, for missiological reasons. Mm-hmm. I Historically, we have been sending missionaries to Spain now for 150 years, and Spain is still 
half of 1% Protestant. We have hardly made a dent here. And historically speaking, I, I think, and I've got, I'm reading, I've got data to back it up. I, I, the conclusion that I'm coming to is that, yes, it is true that Spaniards, just like everyone, okay, yes, they are hard-hearted, just like Canadians are, just like Chinese are, everyone's hard-hearted. <laughs> but we can't keep on blaming them for our lack of success. I think that part of the reason why we're, I think we're putting up obstacles that are non-gospel obstacles mm. in the way of people from keeping them from entering our churches and being able to understand what we're trying to do in our church services. I mean, our, our, you, it, it's, it's hard to imagine a more drastic contrast to a typical Roman Catholic church service than an American Baptist church service mm -hmm. that's just been cut and pasted in Spain and then translated into Spanish. Uh, it is, they, they don't know what they're seeing. They don't get it. Um, everything from the architecture to the liturgy, to the structure, to what the pastor's wearing, everything is just so foreign. And so I think that that's an obstacle that we would do well to take away so that they would understand what it is we're saying. Um, one of my favorite quotes from the Reformate about the Reformation is, um, I'm pretty sure it was Rowan Williams. And I'm not, you know, I'm not endorsing everything that the previous uh, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury said, but he said the Reformation wasn't about everything. It was about some things. And that's a very important uh, mm. a piece of advice. Yeah. And um, so we don't have to be anti-Roman Catholic in everything we do. I mean, that's we're not protesting absolutely everything. What mm. we are protesting is how does God apply the forgiveness that's offered to us in Christ? How, how does he apply that to us? And so liturgy is a secondary issue. And as, as I hope we've been able to, 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 to explain, it actually can be a very edifying component to add to the church's spiritual life and our own spiritual life. So there was a second part to your, oh yes, the second part to your question, this is where things get extremely, extremely hard and complicated because, you know, like when we want to, when we try to put in liturgy, there is, when we, in, in a certain way, liturgy is almost antithetical in some ways. It's antithetical to the type of worship that we find it described in the New Testament. You know, so like in the New Testament, people are actually gathering at night. They're gathering in homes. They're having a meal together. Um, they're more than one person is talking. Um, and in liturgy, we're gathering in a building in the morning no one's eating, and usually one person talks. I mean, they're just New Testament and liturgy, you know, high liturgy, they're, 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 they're different things. And so I'm saying this to say, <laughs> I don't know what the answer is. Mm. I know that, that New Testament worship is good. And I know that liturgy is edifying. And I personally, and if any of your listeners have cracked this riddle, please get in touch with me. I would love to hear but how to preserve the essential of New Testament worship with the wisdom of centuries of the liturgy, mm. um, how to put these things together. I think that's a really good thing to, to, mm. to think about. And maybe, I don't know, but maybe, maybe we as Baptists are in a unique position to try to put these things together because mm. we already value so much New Testament worship 
Mm. If we can find a way to incorporate the insights of the centuries, we may be in a nice place to um, to fuse these things together. That, that's a great challenge. I would love to hear from our listeners on that. Um, let me share another quick story to bring things full circle. So Justin, we talked about him at the beginning of the show. And as we were having this conversation about Lord's Day, and, and of, of course, that relates to the way that we worship corporately. Um, one thing that, that him and I absolutely see eye to eye on is uh, he was recently in a, a missionary training and questions were being asked, um, you know, for conversation, for discussion about um, how, how do we develop nationals as leaders? How can we effectively disciple and, and see spiritual growth and, and, and see a pipeline of, of believers mature, right? And, and these, these sorts of very almost mechanistic, mechanistic um, uh, Western questions that, that we want to ask, and, and they're good questions, of course. Um, and, and it became a joke. He, he told me, I wasn't there, but he told me he's raising his hand each time in the midst of that training saying, Sunday morning, Sunday morning, back and forth, over and over again. Um, and and it, it took a while for people to catch on because he starts out he, the, the question of how do we train uh, nationals? He says, well, what if we built a program where we gathered once a week? We did some some singing. We we read scripture. We, you know, and, and, and everyone's kind of leaning in and, until he finally says, and, and maybe we could have like these these two kind of symbols that we would do, you know, one, one might involve water and, and only then did people start to kind of pick up what he was putting down. But I, I think the point of that is, is that so many of the things that we try to engineer on our own and we should be flexible and adaptive and creative and use all sorts of platforms and means that are available to us. But so much of what we want to accomplish outside of evangelism, the, the discipleship, the training up, the, the multiplying of disciples that happens as people grow spiritually when they're gathered together as a body. And I, I think we're really uh, wired and, and disposed these days against the idea of, well, you know, that's just Sunday morning, you know, that, that, that's the huddle. And then the other six days a week is the game. And we tend to think that way so much mm. that I think we miss out mm. on the grace that's available for us there each week um, on that set apart day. So Andy, this is awesome. We need to reschedule it. I, I can tell you want to cut in. Uh, we need to schedule another time to um, uh, to talk more. If you want to share another thought, you absolutely can. But I also want to let you share how people can get a hold of you and, and learn more about your ministry too as we close. Well, for the sake of time and uh, to keep everyone hanging, I won't share the thought I was going <laughs> to share. We're hanging. Uh, it, okay. It, it would take a while too, but um I'm really not that important. I, I, I on these issues, uh, I'm, I'm a Baptist, you know, for better, or for worse, I'm a Baptist. I've really appreciated and learned a lot from center for Baptist renewal. Um, I would direct people there. They've got some, some really good resources. I, I have some things, you know, I have an academia page and I have a Spanish webpage, but if people did want to get a hold of me, they can get a hold of me at my, at my, um, ABWE email address, um, which is just my last name, mesmer at abwe.cc. And they can get a hold of me. I'd be glad to talk with them about liturgy. Love it. Well, thank you for being with us today, Andy, and appreciate your ministry in Spain. We look forward to continuing this deep conversation. There's a lot here, but if this podcast has been a blessing to you, share it with a friend and remember to leave us a positive review and a five-star rating that'll help get this content through the algorithms, all the places where it needs to go, and hopefully bless more people. 
And if you have any questions, alex at missionspodcast.com and missionspodcast.com, that is the website where you can get more content. So until next week, thank you for listening.